Good morning, church. We're going to be in John chapter 1 this morning again as part of our three-week Advent series. John chapter 1, verses 6 through 15. I'll give you a second to get there. Our series this year is called Before, After, and Forever. And so last week we looked at John 1, 1 through 5, before Christ took on human flesh, before the incarnation. And today we're going to look at verses 6 through 15 of John chapter 1 to see what Christ did after he took on human flesh, after the incarnation. So if you are there in John chapter 1, give me a hallelujah. That sounds like enough. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, it will be behind me on the screen in my translation, which is also the CSB. And this is what the word of the Lord says. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify about the light so that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to testify about the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him. And yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent, or of the will of the flesh, or of the will of man, but of God. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. We observed his glory, the glory as the one and only Son From the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him and exclaimed, This was the one of whom I said, The one coming after me ranks ahead of me, because he existed before me. This is the word of the Lord. So, Christmas, in the words of Andy Williams, is the most wonderful time of the year, right? I mean, you got the lights, you got the music, the presents, the movies. And yet, is it not also a very divisive? time. I mean, every year we hear the same arguments rehashed. Should we get a real tree or should we get a fake tree? I'm team fake tree. Just throw it in the attic. Is the Jim Carrey Grinch the superior Grinch or is it the original Grinch that's better? We're not even going to mention the new one that they got out. Is eggnog good or is it plain awful, right? Do we decorate the tree with white lights or do we throw up the color lights? And then finally, is Die Hard, a Christmas movie, or is it not? Now, those are silly arguments, right? But Christmas is also divisive in that we have to be around family members that we may not always see eye to eye with, right? We go to Christmas lunches and Christmas dinners with a running list of all the topics that we uh, can't bring up, like politics, sports, religion, the weather, things like that. There can be a lot of division at Christmas, And yet even those arguments pale in comparison to the division that our text this morning reveals. You see, in John chapter 1, John is continuing to lay before us the glory of Christ, the light and life of the world, while also making it clear that the glory of Christ that has shone upon humanity has also brought a dividing line. And so today we're looking at the after of our three-week Christmas series. And this text can be divided into three sections, which are going to serve as our three points for this morning. But I want to warn you, okay? I know as Baptists, some of our least favorite words are change and different. Um, We're going to be looking this morning at the text a little bit differently than we typically do. Because the way John has arranged these verses, his main point is not 
at the beginning or the end. It's in the middle. And so point number one is going to come from verses 6 through 10. We're going to shoot down to verses 14 through 15. And then we're going to end on verses 10 through 13. Are we good with that? All right. Point number one, the witness. Point number one, the witness. The writer of this gospel, John, in verse 6, introduces us to John the Baptist, right? Who is described as if he is a witness in a courtroom. And he says that John is a witness sent from God to bear witness about the light that was first mentioned in verse 5. And so it is clear from the way the gospel writer describes him that John the Baptist's role is not to be the light. Some scholars believe that perhaps some of the original readers of this gospel may have thought or been told that John the Baptist was the light and life of the world. And so the gospel writer makes it clear by repeating four times in these verses that John the Baptist is not the eternal word. John the Baptist is not the light and life of the world, as said in verse 5. He, his job is merely to point to and reflect the light and life of the world. We can think of John's relationship to Jesus kind of like the moon's relationship to the sun. Uh, just in case you don't remember a thing from third grade science like I do, uh, the moon does not produce its own light, right? I actually had to Google that to make sure that was true. What we perceive as moonlight is actually simply sunlight reflecting off the moon. So ultimately, what the moon is doing is pointing back to the sun. And so in the same way, John the Baptist gets his authority from God the Son, and he merely reflects God the Son. He is not the source of light. The gospel writer is trying to get this into our brains. His role as a witness is to point others to the true light and to point others to the true life of the world, whom we know to be Jesus Christ. Now, is there not a lesson to be learned here for us as the church? John was commissioned. He was sent by God to bear witness about Jesus before Jesus' public ministry. And before ascending into heaven, after the work of the cross, after Jesus did what he came to do, Jesus sends out the church to bear witness about him. Should not our witness then, like John's, be radically Christ-centered? Should not the church be the voice crying out in a wilderness of lostness, calling for faith and repentance, making Jesus the hero of what the church does? The role of the church is the same as the role of John the Baptist thousands of years ago. We are to make much of Jesus. We are to make much of Jesus even in the face of opposition. When we understand that the role of the church is to lift up the glory of Christ and not cater to trends or people's perceived needs, it radically alters how we view success in the church. Right? If we were to gauge John the Baptist's ministry by today's standards, we'd call him a failure. Right? He was arrested and beheaded. Right? Um, it radically alters how we view success. It does not matter if the goal is to make Jesus the hero. It does not matter how many are in attendance, how many events or programs the church has, or how much tithe money the church brings in. If the name of Jesus is not made famous, then that church is failing at what Jesus has called it to do, which is to proclaim the glorious excellencies of the light of the world. First Baptist Church of Cordill exists to proclaim the glory of Christ and no one else's. 
And this is true not just of the church, but of individuals as well. Our job as Christ's followers is not to boast about ourselves. It is not to boast in what we have done, but to point to Jesus and what He has done. We are not to be witnesses to ourselves. John the Baptist was not standing in the wilderness like, look how awesome I am with my dirty clothes and eating locusts. Right? We are to be witnesses to Christ and to Christ alone. The church is to proclaim the majesty of the one through whom all things are made that we saw in verse 1 and 2. Through whom all things are made and who has existed before time even began. For he is the very source of light and he, in the, he is the one who, as Paul says, dwells in unapproachable light. And that is who Christ is, which makes what John says down in verses 9 and 10 makes that the more shocking. This eternal Word, who has created every single thing and who upholds the entire cosmos by the power of His Word, has entered into our world. That the one through whom and for whom all things have been made, He is the one who is uncreated and has existed before all things were made and created. He enters into our world. He enters into creation itself. You've heard this illustration before, but Dorothy L. Sayers was a woman who many years ago was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford University, and she was a writer of mystery detective stories. Her most famous character was Lord Peter Whimsey, who was an aristocrat who went around and solved mysteries, kind of like a James Bond before James Bond. And throughout most of the stories, he's a single man until he meets a woman in the novels named Harriet Vane who is not particularly good-looking, and she's one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. And in the book, she's a writer of detective fiction. And so in the book, she and Peter meet, and they solve some mysteries together, and then they fall in love and live happily ever after. Many people have said that Dorothy Sayers looked into the world that she created and looked at the man she created and fell in love with him. She looked into the story that she wrote, and she saw whimsy and she saw that he was lonely and that he needed someone to save him and so she wrote herself into the story and in her stories they lived happily ever after the story of christmas is that god has entered into our story god has entered into human history because he knew our need for salvation he knew that we needed to be rescued from this world that is polluted with sin John says in verse 10 that he, being Jesus, was in the world and the world was created through him and yet the world did not recognize him. As you read John's Gospels, right, if you just read through John's Gospel today, you'll notice John does not portray the world in a very positive light, right? In most instances of him describing the world, it is in a negative light. He views it overwhelmingly negatively, right? He kind of views it the same way that Mufasa in The Lion King views the place, the part of Pride Rock where the light doesn't touch, right? He said, you should just never go there, Simba, right? That's what he says. That's how the, John, the writer of the gospel, views the world, as a place full of sin and darkness and evil. As D.A. Carson notes in his commentary on these verses, God's love is to be admired, not because the world is so big, but because the world is so bad. The in a world stained with sin and misery and darkness and injustice, 
God, the eternal Son, enters into it. So as John Piper says, Christmas is an indictment before it becomes a delight. Christmas is an indictment before it becomes a delight. It is an indictment because it tells us that we need a Savior. It tells us, Christmas tells us that it is impossible for us to save ourselves. It is admitting that in order for us to be rescued from ourselves and from this world and from sin, we need something outside of us to do it. Tim Keller says in kind of a lengthy quote, he says, Christmas, therefore, is the most unsentimental, realistic way of looking at life. It does not say, cheer up. If we all pull together, we can make the world a better place. The Bible never counsels indifference to the forces of darkness, only resistance, but it supports no illusions that we can defeat them. Christianity does not agree with the optimistic thinkers who say, we can fix things if we just try hard enough. Nor does Christianity agree with the pessimists who see only a dystopian future. The message of Christianity is instead, things really are this bad. And we can't heal or save ourselves. Things really are this dark. And nevertheless, there is hope. The Christmas message is that on those living in the land of shadow, a light has dawned. Notice that it doesn't say from the world a light has sprung, but upon the world a light has dawned. It has come from outside. There is light outside of this world, and Jesus has come from it to save us. This is what John witnesses to, that the light of the world has come into the world to save us. John continues to unveil the glory of Christ in verses 14 through 15, if you want to shoot down there. And this is point number two, the glory. So point one was the witness. We see John the Baptist testifying about the glory of Christ in verses 14 through 15. We're going to see more of that glory. He tells us in verse 14 that the pre-existent Christ, the eternal word in verses 1 through 5, has not only come into the world, but that he came into the world with human flesh. He came into the world as fully God and fully man. And so when Christians speak of the incarnation, that big word we hear sometimes, we are referring to the fact that God the Son, the eternal world, has entered into the world, not as a shadow, not merely appearing as a man, but not really, but that he came in fully, as fully man, in the flesh. And he did not lose one ounce of divinity. I mean, there is nothing like this in any of the world's religions, right? Because the flesh Jesus takes on is real human flesh that ages and is vulnerable to death. Some may point to Greek mythology with its stories of gods and goddesses interacting with humanity, right? Perhaps you read in school the stories of Zeus, Poseidon, and Athena, or you've watched Percy Jackson, right? Read those books and how the gods interact with humanity. One writer writing about the Greek god says, For one thing, Men inhabit a body that grows old and can die, one which needs to be replenished with sleep and one that needs food for its belly to survive. But the gods, on the other hand, inhabit a body that is deathless, that is always young and beautiful, and that does not need the same sort of nourishment as men. The gods may bleed when their skin is pricked, but they bleed a special blood, and they cannot die of their wounds. 
Unlike men who eat bread and wine, the gods eat immortal, uncooked food. And the gods no longer eat cooked meat, but savor only the smoke from the altars. Though the gods have no need to eat meat to keep their bodies going, they merely assemble as guests for the pleasure of it. And so while these Greek gods and goddesses, if you read those stories, looked and appeared as human and even interacted with humanity, they were not fully human. They bled special blood. They could not die. They were always young and beautiful. They were not vulnerable to the things that we as humans are vulnerable to every single day. And the picture John paints for us is the complete opposite. That God the Son enters into our world not with a body that couldn't age or get sick or die. He didn't have the mere appearance of a human. He wasn't in the form of a human, but was some sort of special human who didn't need to eat or sleep. Because if Jesus was merely sort of human, if he was kind of human but not really, then he couldn't die for humanity. In order for him to be our perfect Savior and die in the place of unworthy humanity, he had to be fully God and fully man. And John tells us in verse 14, that's exactly what happened. That the eternal word became flesh. And so despite what a way in a manger tells you, Jesus did cry as a baby. Right? That song says no crying he makes. Jesus cried. Jesus came to earth as a real baby that did what real babies do. And yet he did not lose an ounce of divinity. While resting in the arms of Mary, he was also simultaneously holding the very fabric of the universe together. In his incarnation, Christ did not lose any divinity, but rather he took on human attributes, making himself vulnerable to the sin and the darkness that we ourselves are vulnerable to every single day. Unless we think this is some unimportant doctrine that has no bearing on our lives, I want to introduce you to a guy named Richard Rohr. Uh, some of you may have heard of him. He's a New York Times bestselling author. In 2019, he wrote the book, The Universal Christ. Uh, this book was endorsed by Oprah Winfrey. Uh, so sorry to all our Oprah fans in here. And you two's Bono. And in this book, he portrays Jesus of Nazareth as merely some guy, some fella, who, upon whom the Christ spirit descended upon. And so to Richard Rohr, Christ is not a person, but just sort of the spirit that hovers in the universe and can descend upon whoever and whomever it wants, right? Just to show you how his theology plays itself out, uh, the book, The Universal Christ, is dedicated to his dog, Venus, whom he says was Christ for him, right? You ever look at your dog or your cat and say, thou art the Christ, right? That's heresy. Right, so in his view, the Christ just like comes upon this dude one day working in a carpenter shop, Jesus of Nazareth. And so rather than Jesus being God in human flesh, Jesus is just some dude who did a bunch of stuff to show how much God loves us. And so this is important that we get because Christological heresies abound in today's day and age, right? Go through the books of Million Christian Isle and you will see heresy after heresy after heresy. The incarnation as the gospel portrays it, is the divine taking on humanity. It is not some spiritual force. It is the moment in time when God himself has visited us. He dwelt 
among us with real human skin and with real human needs and did not lose an ounce of divinity. And his taking on of humanity means he is able to experience suffering and death for us. That in his life, as he was clothed with human flesh, he experiences hunger. He experiences fear. He experiences the betrayal of a friend, the loss of a loved one. And ultimately and finally, he experienced a thing that if we're all honest with ourselves, we are all scared of, which is death. And he experiences it for us, that we may have eternal life. John goes on in verse 14 when he says that the word, the word has dwelt with us. And the image he uses is that of the Old Testament tabernacle. If you've read your Old Testament, you know that a tabernacle was a tent in which God would dwell among the Israelite camps. All the Israelites would hang out at their campsite, and there was a tabernacle, and God's glory would dwell there. And every time they would move, they'd pick up their tabernacle, they'd go hiking or whatever, they'd put it down, and God's glory would descend upon the tabernacle. And so that way, in the Old Testament, God dwelt among the Israelites. But what John is saying is that the incarnation is the glory of God descending. The incarnation, the word taking on flesh, is God's glory descending not in a tent, but in and through a person. That Jesus is the true and better tabernacle who has come to visit us and to dwell among us. John the Baptist himself says that even though John the Baptist was born before Jesus, that Jesus is greater than John the Baptist. See, back in those times, if you were older, you were seen as having more value. You were seen as superior over people younger than you. But John the Baptist, who is older than Jesus, says in verse 15 that the one coming after me ranks ahead of me because he existed before me. The incarnation is the eternal Christ taking on human flesh. The Christ is not some abstract spirit floating in the air like the force from Star Wars, right? The Christ is a person who has visited us. We live on a visited planet by God himself. I mean, how can we not be in awe of this? We've already seen that and established that in John's gospel, the world is seen as a place full of spiritual darkness and sin and corruption. And Christ is dwelling in unapproachable light from all eternity. And he steps off that throne, surrounded by angels and myriad of saints worshiping him, and enters into our darkness. That of love for his people, that of love for those who would call upon his name, he steps off the throne and enters into our sin-stained, dark world. He comes down and shares in humanity in all aspects except one. And that is sin. For Christ is the perfect human. And he lives that perfect life for us. And so if we want a point of application from this, this idea that God has taken on human flesh for us, think about this. How can we read this as Christ followers? That Christ would descend from glory to dwell among an undeserving people, a people of unclean lips. How could we read that and then refuse to associate with people who are different than us? How can we read that and refuse to associate with those outside of our tax brackets or outside of our self-made definitions of good people? To refuse to associate with the lowest of the low, the poorest of the poor, people who are different than us, is not Christ-like. 
If we want to reflect the heart and love of Christ in the community as individuals and as a church, we must be willing to associate with those who could not be more different than us. And the reason is, is because the work of salvation is only possible because the perfect, eternal Christ was willing to associate with fallen, mortal humanity. That He was willing to associate with us, with prostitutes, with tax collectors, with the religious leaders, with the woman at the well. Is this not why James, in James chapter 2, says that to show favoritism towards the rich and towards the powerful while neglecting the poor and the needy is sin? It's because to do that is to not reflect the heart of Christ. Rebecca Pippert, that's a weird last name, who worked with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, put it this way when describing college students. She said, we must not become, as John Stott puts it, a rabbit hole Christian. Right, The kind who pops his head out of a hole, leaves his Christian roommate in the morning, and scurries the class, only to frantically search for a Christian to sit by, which is an odd way to approach a mission field. And thus he proceeds from class to class. When dinner comes, he sits with the Christians in his dorm at one huge table and thinks, what a witness. From there, he goes to his all-Christian Bible study, and he might even catch a prayer meeting where the Christians pray for the non-believers on his floor. But what luck that he was able to live on the only floor with 17 Christians. Then at night, he scurries back to his Christian roommate, safe and sound. He made it through the day, and his only contacts with the world were those mad, brave dashes to and from Christian activities. While not all of us are college students, are we not prone to do this sort of thing? We rush to and from activities with and for people who think, talk, and act just like us, when we serve a God who is willing to associate with us, to save us, to be around humanity, who could not be more different, who is infinitely different than fallen humanity, any encounter with someone not like us is one we rush through, anxiously awaiting an exit strategy from that interaction, instead of being willing to reflect the heart of Christ towards those who are radically different than us. Because the church is called to associate with the lowly, with those who are not like us. Because Christ has associated with the lowly, you and me. He came and dwelt with us, and His dwelling was glorious, as John says in verse 14, the very glory of the Father, full of grace and truth. By using that phrase, grace and truth, by the way, John calls to mind Exodus 34. In that passage, God's glory passes by Moses as God declares, The Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth. And so not only is John telling us that the fullness of God is in Jesus Christ, John is also telling us that this coming of Christ, this word taking on flesh, was not to bring judgment, but to bear it. He came not to condemn all of humanity, but to show unmerited grace and for the condemnation for our sins to fall upon His shoulders so it would never fall on ours. Christ came not bringing wrath, but He came in order that He might bear wrath. He came to earth fully God and fully man, not to withhold grace, but to lavish it upon us, to pour it out upon all who would believe in His name. This is the glorious Christ of John chapter 1. 
And one would imagine that all this that we've just looked at, God in human flesh, coming in the glory of the Father in order to show eternal grace, that this God would be received and would be welcomed and would be praised. And yet, that is not the case. So point number three, the response. We've looked at the witness, we've looked at the glory, and now we look at the response in verses 10 through 13. We see that the world rejected him. This eternal, glorious Christ visited us to save us in human flesh, and the world rejected him. And his own people, the Jewish people, did not receive him. This planet has been visited personally by Creator God in Jesus Christ, and we rejected him. The creation has rejected the Creator, and the loved has rejected the lover. As Matt Carter says, Jesus made our eyes, yet we refused to see his glory. Jesus made our ears, yet we refused to listen to his words. Jesus made our heads, yet we refused to bow to him. And take note that Jesus did not merely experience just like being ignored, right? He was not treated like some may treat people we see in Walmart who we don't want to talk to. We just kind of look away, get real interested on what's on the shelves, and hope that they just walk by us, right? That's not what humanity did with Christ. We actively rejected him. They opposed him. They wanted him dead. The light of the world shone upon them, and they hated him. He exposed the sins of humanity, and thus they responded with rejection and hatred. They loved their deeds of darkness more than they loved the glory of Christ. But lest we think, though, that rejection was the only response to Christ, there were and are those who believed in his name and were given the right to become the children of God. That's what he tells us down in verse 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to be children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of flesh or of the will of man, but of God. To believe in the name of Christ is not mere mental assent, right? It's not just mere moral agreement with Jesus' moral teachings. When John says that those who believed in his name, to believe in his name is to trust in his very character. To believe in the name of Jesus is to trust that Jesus is who he says he is. If we want to put it in the words of Paul, it is to repent of your sins and to trust in Christ for the salvation of your souls. And for those who received him, they are given the highest privilege, a privilege that is greater than being crowned king, a privilege that is greater than winning the lottery or achieving any earthly success. Those who believe are given the right to become children of God. Now, some may say, are we not all God's children, right? Do we not hear that in Sunday school as children? While it is true that God has created all people, right? We see this, and that he has a general love for all. It is only those who trust in the name of Christ that can be called children of God. That's what John implies in verse 12, that those who receive Christ, before they received Christ, they were not children of God, but because they have received him, they are now call that children of God. They have a special and intimate relationship with the Father, which is one that unbelievers do not have because they did not receive Christ. John wants us to see in this prologue, he's preparing us the rest of, for the rest of his gospel readers for this theme of being born again, 
that will be peppered throughout his gospel. And so John 1, as we have seen, can be seen as a creation chapter. I mean, how does he open verse 1 of chapter 1? One of the first three words. In the beginning. Thank you, Miss Patricia. In the beginning. This is a creation narrative. He, so what we see here is creation happening, but not creation of earthly physical bodies, but we see the creation of a new humanity. We see the creation of people being born again. God creating a new people for Himself in Christ. And this act of becoming children of God, it, it's only the surface of what God has in store for those who would believe in His name. John says in 1 John 3, Verse 2, later on in his life, he says, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we, what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him. Because we shall see Him as He is. To be in Christ, to be declared a child of God, is to be a new creation. It is to declare that because of what Christ has done, the Word in human flesh. The old has passed away and the new has come. I love the way Matt Carter puts it when he says this. Because we are children of God, we don't need to fear the future because we are going to the Father's house. Because we are children of God, we can stop worrying about whether our needs on this earth will be met because our Father gives good gifts to His children. We don't need to be anxious about our 401k because we recognize that our inheritance is not in earthly banks, but in the heavenly realm. And finally, because we are children of God, our hope, our expectation is not in this world. Because someday, as children of the King, we will shine like the, like the sun in our Father's kingdom. And so if you are in Christ, hear this, please. If you don't hear anything else, if you are in Christ, hear this. Your eternal future is secure. Not because of anything you do or will do, but because of what Christ has done for you. You are no longer identified by your sin, but you are declared a child of God because of Christ's work and life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. The problems and trials of this world can neither define you nor destroy you. Because you are safe in the hands of a kind and gracious Father. That is the glorious truth that children of God can rejoice in. But unfortunately, there are some today who claim this promise that they are a child of God, but their claims to such a promise are rooted in something outside of faith. They think they are a child of God because of something outside of receiving. John says this does not happen. Being born a child of God does not happen because of natural descent. So some may say that because of the family they come from, that they're a child of God. They look back at their parents and their grandparents and they assume themselves right with God, not because of putting their trust in Him or swearing allegiance to Him, but rather they assume themselves right with God based on who their family is. Yet John makes it clear that people do not become children of God simply based on who their ancestors are or because they come from a certain racial background. So someone from a Christian family cannot presume that based on that family, that they are a child of God. Someone who comes from a Jewish background and heritage cannot presume God has brought them into his family. John makes it clear, this act of becoming a new creation in Christ, a child of God, has absolutely nothing to do 
with who your parents are or what your race is. And so if you're here this morning, hear this, whether you're an adult, a teenager, or a child, do not assume your mom's faith or your dad's faith will save you. Teenagers, do not assume that you are right with God because you go to church every Sunday. Adults, do not assume that your background and your heritage is your ticket into the family of God. Many people have died trusting in their family's faith as their ticket into heaven. And when they came to the judgment seat of Christ, they realized that that ticket burnt up and was worth nothing. As John Piper again says, being born the second time does not depend on who gave birth to you the first time. We are not made children of God based on who our family is. Some may not base their salvation on their family, but rather they put stock in some sincere moment of decision from back in their past or emotion, as John says in verse 13 when he says the will of the flesh. So if you've ever had the privilege of going to a a youth camp or a youth retreat for a youth group, right? You typically know what the last night of camp is going to be like, right? Over the years, the last night of youth camp or youth retreats has even earned its own title, right? We call it cry night. This is what happens when all the exhausted, emotional teenagers gather in a darkly lit room as emotional worship music is played and a speaker comes up and gives an emotional talk about emotions and sin and sadness. And by the end of the worship service, teens are weeping at the altar, seemingly confessing sin with their arms wrapped around one another with tears in their eyes, right? Have we experienced this, some of us? Now, as much as I may want to, I'm not here to argue about youth group practices and strategies. You can talk to me later. I am, however, saying that one flaw of these emotional worship services is many leave assuming they're saved. They leave assuming that they're right with God, not because they swore allegiance to King Jesus or repented of their sins, but simply because they had some big emotional moment that they would have had anyway if they had been listening to a Taylor Swift song or watching Old Yeller, right? I mean, they would have cried the same way. What John says, it is not by the will of the flesh. He is saying that becoming a child of God is not based on anything we can muster up within ourselves. Now, I'm not saying we don't have a responsibility to choose and to receive Christ. John makes that clear in verse 12 that we do. But what he is saying is that becoming a child of God is not something we can just will up within ourselves. It is not something we can become based on our own strength. He emphasizes this again in verse 13 at the end when he says, it is neither by the will of man. So if becoming a child of God is not found in who our family is or any work or decision we can muster within ourselves, right, our emotional experiences, then from whom do we get the chance to become children of God? How do we get that title, that status, child of God? He answers it at the end of verse 13 but of God, who were born not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of God. It is an act of God's grace through Christ. We are born again and declared children of God because God in His kindness does the act of recreation within us, within all who receive Jesus. It is not a status we will within ourselves or something we can just sort of get in a brief moment of sincerity. It is a supernatural act done by Jesus Christ in the hearts of believers who long for Him and who long 
for the forgiveness of sins. You are not born into it, and you cannot will yourself or work yourself into becoming a child of God. It is by grace through faith in the eternal word, in the, in the light and life of the world that is Jesus Christ. So when we are asked, well, how do you know you're in the family of God? The answer is not, well, because I was born in a Christian family or because I had a big emotional experience at youth group one time. The answer is, by simply, I am a child of God because I have put all my faith and trust in Christ. God has made me a new creation. It is God who has made me a son or daughter of God. And it is here that we see the division that Christmas can bring. You see, because of Christmas, because of the word becoming flesh, all other information about us pales in comparison to the most important question, which is this. What do I think of Jesus of Nazareth? Every single person who walks this earth must answer the question, what do I believe about that baby born in Bethlehem long ago? Is he the eternal word or is he a fraud? Was he just some guy with some good ideas or is he God in human flesh? This question is the most important thing about us because to think Jesus is not who he says he is is to be outside of the children of God, potentially forever. Charles Spurgeon put it this way in only, the only way he can. Were an angel to come here with a drawn sword and suddenly to separate the righteous from the wicked with one stroke of the sword, you would find that his sword had for its edge the question, Believest thou in the Lord Jesus Christ? That is the question that divides all of humanity. What do I believe about Jesus? Do I believe that he is the eternal word who took on human flesh as John has told us? And so, dear friends, as we close this morning, examine your heart. Test yourself and test if you have thrown yourself upon the mercy of Christ and are a child of God or if you've merely been relying on your family or some emotional experience from long ago. Beloved, look upon the glory of Christ as revealed in John 1, that the eternal, preeminent Christ has visited us, fully God and fully man. And he came this time, not with a flaming sword in his hands, but in order that his hands would be pierced through for my sins and for your sins. He came so that all who would trust in him would have eternal life. So if you're here this morning, if you've been striving and working, convinced you must work yourself into becoming a child of God, lay down your arms and rush into the comfort and grace of Jesus Christ, who came in grace and truth. Rush into the hands of Christ who took on human flesh in order that he may die and that death itself may die. Hebrews 2 tells us, Now since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. Christmas means that Christ has taken on human flesh in order that those who receive Him would become children of God and live forever. As we just sang a moment ago, mild He lays His glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second 